Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. It's another bonus Q&A episode of Books of the Year. Um, we're here with best-selling author Joanne Harris. Uh, hopefully you've heard our previous episode where Joanne talks about uh, a brand new book. Maybe you should start, if you're starting here, don't. Go back, listen to the other uh, podcast because that'll make everything will make more sense. It's a bit like starting on series two, isn't it? You don't, nobody starts on series two. You go back to series one, find out what was going on there, yes. and then you get into series two. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that, you know, so so do this in order. Anyway, assuming that you have just done that, um, here's our Q and A. Uh, question number one, Joanne Harris: What is the last book that you really, really enjoyed reading? Oh wow! Um, not, and it not even slightly enjoyed or mildly enjoyed that you were passionate about it's interesting because i find that one of the unfortunate byproducts of being a writer is that when i read something the writer in me very rarely shuts up so it goes there's an extra dialogue tag there it could have been taken out or this is a plot hole or there's something wrong with this characterization and it never never shuts up except when something is completely enthralling And I think the last time I felt this really was with a book by Shelley Parker Chan called She Who Became the Sun. And I've just reread it, actually, because her new one is coming out and it's the the next in the series. And it's it's very rare that I actually pre-order books. I do it with a handful of authors and she has turned out to be one of them. And it's um, it's a sort of historical fantasy set in 14th century China. And the heroine is from a dirt poor background. And she and her brother have both had their fortunes told, or the mother has taken them both to a fortune teller, who has said that the boy will have greatness and the girl will be nothing. And then the parents are killed in the plague, and the children are left alone, and the son dies. And the girl decides to take his identity, and therefore also his destiny, and to become great. So she dresses like a boy, she goes off. It's it's a very dark version of Mulan, but it's also incredibly addictive, um, it's complicated. It's 
it's morally complicated. It's I don't know anything about 14th century China. Do you not? Not any well. <laughs> I mean, I, I do now, but, obviously uh, we do. But I didn't. I didn't then. And uh, I mean, to me, the the historical detail is astonishing. But there's also there's more to it. It's also there is also fantasy beautifully woven into it in a an unexpected beautiful lyrical way and the language is gorgeous and the characterization is complex and I'm just so excited about the next one um so yeah that's that's the last one I I it's the one I keep talking about to people so she who became the sun yes by Shelley Parker Chan okay Shelley Parker Chan just making note of this we'll put we'll put this all in our Show notes, as I believe. They yes, are. that's what the kids call it, don't yes. they? Uh, next question, um, Joanne, is if you didn't have your shed at the bottom of the garden, where would you choose to write? So this this uh, assumes knowledge on on the, on behalf of our <laughs> listeners that you have a shed at the bottom of your garden where you do write. So tell us a little about that. But then, if you didn't have that shed, where would you be? Where would you be? Well, the thing about the shed is that it's completely portable. My shed is at the same time real because it's there, yes, in the back of the garden, but it's also an imaginary shed that has its own personality and which acquires different characteristics depending on what mood I'm in. Where I am, for instance, today, the shed is is in my flat in London and it has an aspect which is related to the book that I'm writing. That's not always true. Um, so it's a shed in inverted commas? Sort of. It's a metaphorical shed as well as a physical shed. Like a lot of the things I write about, it has these two aspects. Um, when I was starting off writing, I didn't have a shed. I didn't even have a study. I would just work on the floor of whatever room I happened to be in. And I still do that. That's where I work. You, you know, if, if, if I'm at an airport waiting for a plane, you'll see me sitting on the floor near to a power socket working on my laptop. Um and that works fine for me. And I worked out um, a kind of little trick to get myself into the zone. Um, and I called it the portable desk. I now apply this to the portable shed. And I, I would have two objects, two small portable objects, obviously. And I would just put them wherever I was sitting on each side of my laptop. Sometimes it was two candlesticks, but I found that taking candlesticks on an aeroplane has its own attendant <laughs> problems. So I didn't do that anymore. Now it's a stone and uh, and a little ceramic that used to belong to my grandfather. It doesn't really matter what it is, as long as you associate it with your workspace. So I know that when I put those two things alongside my laptop, that's my workspace and that's where I can work. And it's become a sort of little psych trick to get me in the zone. That, so that's, so that's, that's where I work. That's That's my shed, actually. I used to have because working in radio, there's always a red light that goes on ah, um, yes. whenever you're whenever you're working, and and I found that what I started doing when I was trying to write is I'd light a candle, um, and I get a new fancy pants candle um, for every book, and then I discovered because I get asthma uh, that actually it's like an enclosed space with a candle okay. is one of the worst things to do. Never do it. In fact, ah. we don't have candles at all now, right. you know, because. The little particles that they give off. So I'm, I'm looking for a new trick. So I'll well, try. you know, you could work. You <clears> could, <throat> you could use a scent. I, I also use scents, because I mean, this is a trick that I learnt from actors, actually musical theatre actors particularly. But it's also in Stanislavski's book, An Actor Prepares, getting into character, where a scent which you associate with that character and only with that character. And it's sort of, boom, you can get into character much faster. Mm. And I thought, okay, what if what if we applied this to writing books? Because 
you know, I knew that certain scents could make could help you concentrate. I thought, okay, what what if I used a scent that matched the book I was writing? That too is portable. So now I do this. I've been doing it for twenty years. Um, the one I used for Broken Light actually was was a, a scent by Bacurcajan called um, Lumière Noire. Um, and I, I only ever wore it when I was writing that book. Um, so, so it's a but perf- I wore it all the time. So it's a perfume that you w- would you ever use a room scent, um, or is it always something a, a perfume that you would? You could use a room scent. You could use um, an essential oil. You could use anything really. The thing about scent is that it triggers feelings, and it's a quick, easy way of accessing the thing that helps you imagine things. So that too is is a portable thing. It means that I don't have to go through a lot of rituals. Um, so yeah, I mean, it could work for you. It certainly works for a lot of uh, a lot of musical theatre actors. It's fascinating because there are some days when writing, when you will just boom, 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 everything's coming out. There it is, flying, flying through the laptop. It's all wonderful. And there are a lot of days when nothing is happening, and for like half an hour, change your aftershave. Absolutely, that's the way to go. Get rid of get get rid of the Paco Rabanne. Um, in uh... And if your shed at home smells of mould, then maybe you should take some mould with you. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, or get rid of the mould. Mould isn't good in a shed or anywhere else, really. There's a lot of scent in your books anyway, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, and certainly is in this that, you know, you dis- when you go into a room, the room is described as is common in Lee Child. I remember talking about when he, on the podcast, he said, use all the five senses. Um, what does it look like? What, what, can, you, what can you see? What does it yeah, sound tried. like? What does it smell like? He's absolutely right. Not enough people use scents because it's easier to talk about visuals and sounds. But actually, if you want people to feel something, a scent works better. Uh, in an article, this is our next question in the Q&A with Joanne Harris. In an article from some years back, Joanne, you listed your hobbies as, and I'm quoting here, mooching, lounging, strutting, strumming, priest baiting... <laughs> Oh, lovely. So I think we're going back quite a long time there with that well, one. Well, yes. And quiet subversion of the system. So the so the question, I think, is do you is that still accurate and which do you enjoy the most? Well, I don't bake quite as many priests as I used to. I get on quite well with priests, actually. It's, it's absurd how many priests and bishops and archbishops I've actually got to know over this one priest-baiting book of mine. Um yeah, I mean... I but, seem to remember Miramax changed that a little bit. Yeah, they didn't like the idea of having a priest <laughs> as a bad guy because, of course, no priest could do anything bad. No. <laughs> anyway. No, I think I think the subversion is still definitely going on somehow. And sometimes things need to be subverted. Sometimes you you do need to, to call things out. I've been getting awfully political in my old age. I never meant to, but... Uh, this is why I get in trouble on social media. Yeah. Has, the, has all that business with the Society of Authors, has that calmed down now or is that still kind of rumbling? Well, it was never a business with the Society of Authors at all. Because you're the chair. It was with people who felt that, you know, they should be represented more than other people. And, and you know, no, the Society of Authors is, is neutral. I'm not neutral, but then I'm not the Society of Authors. I'm allowed to have opinions. And has that gone away or is that well you know i still get people popping their heads up going why don't you believe this or why do you why do you say that and my answer is usually because like you i have free speech hooray how much time joanne do you spend in the library not as much as i used to because i don't have a local library anymore 
but I do have a private library of my own in my house. And I also am a member of the British Library, so when I come here, I do tend to go and work in there, and it's a wonderful place to work, and it's also a fabulous resource. But when I was a kid, I used to live in the library. It was, um, it was my go-to place to do homework, but also just to to read all the books my mother didn't allow me to read at home <laughs> that was that was always the thing like what what was what were you reading in the library oh i wasn't allowed to read horror or fantasy or right. sci-fi you, you 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 can see a theme emerging here the first thing i wrote was a vampire novel mostly to annoy my mother um but yeah i mean i i used to get dropped when i was a child while my parents went to the market i used to get dropped in barnsley library for an hour and I would just frantically speed read anything I could that I knew wouldn't pass muster. And then I would I would go out with my one chosen book, which had been approved by the librarian, who was extremely strict and and who really didn't think I ought to be reading quite as much as, as I was doing. Um and and then I would take that book home and read that. But yeah, I lived I lived in the library. It was absolutely my it was my lifeline throughout the whole of my formative years because I couldn't I couldn't afford to buy as many books as I wanted even though all my pocket money went on buying books, actually. So if, if you're walking through the British Library and you see someone hunched over a laptop <clears> with a with a pebble on one side and yeah, a piece of yes. ceramic on the other, you <laughs> yeah, know precisely yeah. exactly it's gonna what's be. going on. Yeah, it'll be me. You need to put your headphones on for uh, this next Ooh, question. Because we always like to get a question from a fellow author or fan. Uh, so here we get a, a voice note, a question from Chair of the Women's Prize for Fiction, best-selling author Kate Moss. Hello, Joanne, and hello, Matt and Simon, too. It's Kate Moss here. Joanne, you're a brilliant mistress of so many different kinds of genres. So I wanted to know with this one, what came first? Was it the incredible character of Bernie Moon herself? Was it the idea about the invisibility of older women? Or was it the sense of atmosphere and the kind of thriller uh, that you wanted to write? Love to know the answer. Oh, I think it was definitely... Bernie. I knew I wanted to write that kind of character. I knew that I wanted to write basically a menopausal Carrie, um, a middle-aged woman with superpowers, and I really wanted to explore her voice and where her powers came from and how she would use them. Uh, we started, or you started your career, as you already um, said, Joanne, as a teacher, uh, then became an author. If neither of those had been in the offing, so if we were to strike those off, which other profession do you think you'd have found yourself in? I'd have been a pirate. Oh, I like I wanted this. to be a pirate from a very early age. In fact, my one of my first memories was running away from home um, to be a pirate. Um, I was about six. I'd just started primary school. I didn't like it. Um... It was it was just horrible. I got bullied. It was just the most hateful place and I had to do maths and it was just awful. And then I realised that I would have to go to school for at least another 10 years. And I thought, right, I'm not doing this. I'm running away to sea. And so I, I went home. I packed a little bag. I got my knife and some matches and some food and ran off into a piece of wasteland about a mile away and... There was a local constable who found me there. I'd built a shelter and I was trying to light a fire. And and I told him that I wasn't going home. I was going to run away to sea to be a pirate. And and he persuaded me to come back just for a year or two um, to see if school would work out for me. 
and then I could always go pirating later. So I thought, all right, what, why had to try. piracy in particular been the thing that you were going to run away for? Well, a lot of the books that I read or a lot of the stories that I read about were about people basically running away to sea and becoming pirates. And I thought, oh, this, it's a sailor's life for me. <laughs> also, I love the sea. I, I understand the sea. I, I was, um, you know, my grandfather in France used to have a house by the sea and we would go there for holidays and stay there for six or seven weeks at a time. And so I was very comfortable with swimming, with boats from a very early age. And I thought, you know, I can, I can do this. Do I you, still think this sometimes. Yes. With, with, with that experience of school and then, as you, as you mentioned in the previous conversation that we had when we were talking about your, your new book, uh, Your Life as a Teacher, is there a, a novel that you've read set in a school that you've thought, I liked that. That was either either you liked the novel or you liked the school or you liked the teachers because teachers bring a certain susceptibility to uh, books with schools in. It's interesting. I think I find most novels set in schools impossible to read because the detail isn't right. It's extremely difficult to get the detail of a, a little subculture, a little microcosm like a school right, unless you are a teacher. And the ones that I've read just haven't really hit it. They've, they've hit certain things perfectly right, but other things you'd think, well, no teacher would have done that or all teachers would have known that. Um, I think the exception is possibly Donna Tartt's The Secret History, although that's that's not really set in a school. It's set in a, a university environment. But I believed that, certainly. It's when you, it's, I, I, my wife refuses to watch anything on, on TV with me that involves journalists because as soon as a journalist, I always going, that would never happen. Absolutely. They would never ask that question and here is why and then I'm off for 10 minutes and she's lost the complete thread of the, uh, of the detective fiction being played out on screen. Exactly. Um, you, you've published uh, 19 novels. Have you, have you learnt something from each one, from writing each one and... If so, what did you learn from, from Broken Light? Oh, I do hope I learned something from each one. Um, I never know what I learnt until later, honestly. Um, they're not usually lessons that I think, ah, right, this is the takeaway from this novel. Usually it's a much slower evolution. Right now, at the moment, I'm involved in recording some audiobooks of some of my older books and... I'm just in the middle of five quarters of the orange. I just did blackberry wine. And what I realised that I learnt from those is make your sentences shorter and don't use as many dialogue tags because I look at what I write now and the sentences are much shorter and there aren't as many dialogue tags. And nobody told me to do this. Nobody edited them out. It's just something that I learnt along the way. And honestly, I think I might have learnt it partly from Twitter. I, I was listening to um, interviews with um, other authors, and one of them said, "I wish it were possible for me to be able to read out, do the audio book before the book is actually sent for publication, mm. because there are so many times where I will be reading through it and realise, oh no, I've done no, that that doesn't actually work, and I wish I could." But obviously, by the time you're doing the audio book, it tends to already have been either published or it's on its way. Inevitably, yes, and this is why I always read stuff aloud when I'm writing. I will read things aloud. Usually I'll read aloud the last chapter I wrote before starting work. But when I'm editing, I also read aloud because it's actually the best editing tool you've got. If you read stuff aloud, you can tell if your sentences are too long. You can tell if the algorithms of the phrase are not quite right. 
you know, you, you can tell if the dialogue's punchy or whether there's a bit too much going on there in the other elements of it. It, it's, it helps. And people can sometimes feel a bit self-conscious doing it, but actually it really helps. So, you know, that person you'll see in the British Library with their laptop and their two items will also be muttering furiously to themselves because this is what I do. Uh, finally, if you had to choose one forever, chocolate or perfume? <laughs> oh, I don't think there is a choice. I think it would have to be perfume because I... Well, for a start, much as I like chocolate, I don't love it in the way some people love it. Um, very often I'll choose something that's not chocolate flavoured because I actually prefer other things. But perfume is, and scent generally, is so much part of the way I process the world and the way my writing process works that I couldn't really exist without it. Um, and also because I have synesthesia, which means that I can smell colours, I can basically experience chocolate any time I want to. All I have to do is look at the colour red. Now you're sounding like Bernie. <laughs> well. <laughs> wow. So you visualise the colour red and you can taste chocolate. Milk I, no, or I, chocolate? I, can't, I don't visualise it. I have to actually see it. Okay. But it triggers the smell of chocolate in my head, uh, which is strange. And sometimes I actually have to shut my eyes to, to see if a scent is real or whether it's a synesthesia scent. Right now in this studio, there aren't really any bright colours, so I'm, I'm not getting any of that. But um, be if I stared at that orange for long enough, I would probably get something. <laughs> OK. It's my orange, so hands off. <laughs> um, so Joanne Harris's book is, is Broken Light, so this might sound a little bit dark, but what are you, presumably you're finishing a book or there's a number of stories running in your head at the moment. What do we After this, what do we get from you? I'm not sure what you get because I have a number of... Trains lined up in the station, if you like. Uh, I think the next thing that's going to be coming out, but it won't be just yet, is uh, a book that I've written for Golantz called A Dream of Silk and Starlight, and it's it's a fantasy novel. Um, but I'm also... That's finished. I've just edited it. But I'm also writing two other things. Uh, one is another fantasy novel that nobody knows about because... I haven't spoken about it to my editor. And another one is a book for Orion, which is going to be part of my Chocolat series, but it's actually a prequel. It's a prequel to Chocolat. It's how Vian becomes Vian and how she's introduced to making chocolate. And it's very interesting going back to to that part of the story. It's, it's, it, it's, it's quite a, a strange thing to do. It's like travelling back through time. There's an awful lot to come from Joanne. Mm. Hopefully. Joanne, thank you very much. My pleasure. Lovely to be here.